what's going on everybody welcome back to another episode of the hedging screens podcast as always i'm your host zach cronin and i'm coming to you live from the frigid oasis that is downstate new york i hope everybody is doing well i hope everybody is safe healthy i hope everybody in southern california is enjoying themselves after of course the super bowl as you guys know there was a you know there was a football game played on Sunday, uh, pretty minor, you know, not too big of a deal for us sports fans. It featured, of course, the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals, of course, going head to head in what was it, Super Bowl Fifty Six LVI? I think that's six. I just listen. Twenty five years on this earth, I still can't remember how to read Roman numerals, but I guess that is the, um, I guess that's the public school system failing me, and also I can I can feel my ancestors rolling over in their graves. Um, dude. The Super Bowl, I had an absolutely amazing time watching it for the most part. Um, I'm sure that you guys also recognize the fact that at certain points, the Super Bowl was just like, this Super Bowl in particular was just not it, man. It was it was a trip. It was a trip. Of course, it got off to a decent start. My guy, Odell Beckham Jr., caught the game opening touchdown, the first touchdown of the game before, unfortunately, succumbing to what I believe is now an ACL injury which he suffered later on in the game and it was apparent that from the beginning these teams were evenly matched and even more so after Odell went down because the big thing the reason the Rams went out and got Odell Beckham Jr. especially after um after um the Robert Woods injury and first of all congratulations to Matthew Stafford Odell Beckham Aaron Donald Jalen Ramsey Cooper Cup all these guys who played an absolutely fantastic season an absolutely fantastic game Cooper Cup was we'll get to him in a little bit but this season in particular for him was it was right up there with you know the likes of Randy Moss and Calvin Johnson what an absolute fucking demon this guy was but as we know Odell Beckham and by the way fuck all you guys who went ahead and talked all that shit about Odell Beckham yeah you guys know who the fuck you are everybody in the New York media everybody in the Cleveland, the greater Cleveland area, the greater Ohio area. I don't even give a fuck, man. No one gives a fuck about Cleveland, straight up. Not even LeBron. LeBron fucking left. Now, I'm happy Odell got his ring. And I was rooting for him. I was rooting for him. Not just, not even the Rams, just Odell. And I'm glad to see him get his ring. But folks logged on to Al Gore's internet. In the year 2022, the, in the year of our Lord and Savior, 2022, and were serious as a heart attack when they said that Odell Beckham Jr. was the problem in Cleveland. Now, was his tenure with the Cleveland Browns the um, the most uneventful? No, it was not. There were, of course, reports citing his, uh, I guess, his discontent with the organization. There was that whole incident with his father going and talking shit about Baker Mayfield, essentially saying that Baker Mayfield was mid as fuck and that he wasn't capable of doing anything with Jarvis Landry, with Odell Beckham, of course, and it proved out. To, it proved to be true. Odell, who got the short end of the stick with the Giants, mind you, was wrongfully traded after the Giants pretty much fell off a cliff following him going to Miami and partying <laughs> with uh, Trey Songs, and of course posting that infamous shirtless yacht pic. But people were like, "Oh, Odell's a crybaby, this, that, whatever." Odell doesn't deserve to get a ring because he quit on the Cleveland Browns, and like. I just, I don't understand why 
it's such an issue for certain people or for some people to just like obviously see that an athlete is in a situation that they don't that they're not comfortable in or that the situation hasn't panned out the way they thought they would and they're not allowed to be upset about it and they're not allowed to ask for a trade to go elsewhere and they're not allowed to leave that team they have to stick it they have to stick it out in that dog shit situation when it's clear that it's simply not working Odell Beckham Jr. and the Browns did not have a good relationship whether it was it stemmed off the off the field and then permeated onto the um onto the football field it could have been the case of that just maybe Baker Mayfield and Odell were not they were simply not compatible with one another or or this is a fucking five head take or Cleveland having too many weapons you had Kareem Hunt Nick Chubb Austin Hooper uh, David Njoku, I believe, at some point as well. Odell, Jarvis Landry. There were so many options on this team that it was kind of just like overstimulation for Baker Mayfield, I feel like. And Odell wanted to get out of that situation. He wanted to go to a team that would afford him the opportunity to rebuild himself. Because after you've been relentlessly torn down ever since your days with the New York Giants, where after a couple of seasons, Odell was very clearly one of the best receivers in the NFL, arguably the most talented receiver in the NFL, just in terms of being able to catch the football, just in in terms of running routes, being able to utilize his athleticism in conjunction with his craftiness. Like he was up there with Michael Thomas, Antonio Brown before his home meltdown. And had that persisted, we would have been talking about Odell in the same category as Devontae Adams and Cooper Cup, who are very clearly the two best wide receivers in football at the moment so he signs with the Rams and it's probably the best situation for him they're a contending team just lost Robert Woods to an ACL injury you need to bring in another legitimate wide receiver who can line up opposite of Cooper Cup because if you don't and we saw this transpire in the Super Bowl if you don't have that other threat the defense is just going to double and triple triple team Cooper Cup and they're going to be like okay beat us with Van Jefferson beat us with Cam Akers beat us with Sony Michelle beat us with um not Tyler Higby. Who the fuck was playing tight end for them? I can't even remember who the fuck was playing tight end for the Los Angeles Rams. Beat him with um, Dan Skronik. I think I think his first name's Dan. I can't remember. And we saw that happen when Odell went down. So fast forward a little bit. It was very, uh, very rocky. Both offensive lines for both the Bengals and the Rams did not look that great. As we know, <laughs> the Rams mustered something like 25 rushing yards. For the entire game, Joe Burrow got sacked like seven or eight times, tying the record, tying the Super Bowl record for most times being sacked and setting, I think it was the third most um, sacks in a season, playoffs and regular season combined with 70. So the Bengals offensive line having to go up against fucking Aaron Donald and Von Miller and then having Jalen Ramsey on the backside and of course Eric Weddle, it was just, it was, it was a mess. But it really speaks to the caliber of quarterback that Joe Burrow is. And I don't think that heading into this upcoming season, I don't think that many people are going to be keeping Joe Burrow out of like that top five, like the the uh, the Pat- Patrick Allen, the Patrick Mahomes class, Josh Allen, uh, Aaron Rodgers, um, Lamar Jackson. Like he's going to be in there. And the Bengals, although they're not the favorites to uh, get back, to, they're not really favored to get back to the Super Bowl next season. I think they're going to have a very, very decent team. And Joe Burrow is only going to get better. He's only going to get a better connection with Jamar Jamar Chase, Joe Mixon. But 
Dude, I don't know. Like, they're they're I'm I'm so all over the place because there really are only a few points that stick out to me in this game. Of course, one of them is the T. Higgins 70-yard touchdown reception. I think it was like right out of halftime or something where Jalen Ramsey one-on-one with T. Higgins on the outside. Jalen Ramsey doesn't really get beat per se, but for him to get basically ripped down by his face mask, not a good look. (laughs) Not a good look for the Rams defense at that point in the game because we were watching it unfold in real time, and it was like Jalen Ramsey just fell. He, He straight up just like slipped on a piece of turf, he got it's like T. Higgins tied his shoelaces together when he was lining up across from him. He just fell. And this is one of the best cornerbacks in the game just falling down. And then, of course, they show the replay. And everybody, Chris Collinsworth, Al Michaels, anyone and everybody, everybody on Twitter, everybody was like, oh, my God. If this decides the game, if this should have, if this, uh, this neglected off- offensive pass interference call, Decides the game. Heads are going to fucking roll. They're going to fucking roll. Fortunately, it did not. And some of this is, of course, the result of the referees trying to get makeup calls to make up for that egregious mistake that they had made. Towards the end of the game, the Bengals are just getting penalized, 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 penalized. I think it was like four penalties in the final four minutes or something after just two after just two the entire game one of which being a delay of game on the Los Angeles Rams so not even like not even a not even a real penalty it wasn't a live ball penalty and then of course you have that unsportsmanlike hit on Cooper Cup offset by I think it was holding or some shit like that the end of the game was insane and thank God that Cooper Cup played for the Los Angeles Rams because it got to a point where you know Sean McVay was kind of just like listen I have my Pro Bowl quarterback I have the best receiver in football a historic season he had mind you like 2022 combined touchdowns regular season and playoffs over 2,000 combined yards won the receiving triple crown it's like we're just going to play pitch and catch for the rest of the game Running game isn't working. We have no other options. And fortunately, Eli Apple is lined up alongside Cooper Cup. Even if you double him, Cooper Cup is an amazing route runner. Even if you double him, they will find the opening of the defense and Matt Stafford will be able to deliver that ball to Cooper Cup. And that's how it went. Cooper Cup had, I think, four receptions for like 50 yards or something on the final drive. Just pitch and catch, pitch and catch, pitch and catch. It was very similar to how a lot of NBA teams run their offenses in the final minutes of close games, of, you know, playoff series, seeding games, stuff like that. You just put the ball in the hands of your best players and you let them make plays. You're going to live and die by Matt Stafford and Cooper Cup. No one is going to be upset with you if you lose the game throwing incompletions to Cooper Cup because at least you're giving your guys the chance. Now, speaking of this, one thing that still stands out to me as of today is that third and one call that the Bengals had right around midfield, right around midfield. Zach Taylor, second youngest coach in the NFL, right? This is his first winning season in three years. And he's going to the Super Bowl. This was a rookie head coach moment that he had. It's third and one. And he hands the ball off to Samaji Pirine. 
think it, I think his first name is Samaji. Guys, I don't know if you've picked up on this. I am absolute dog shit when it comes to remembering the first names of non-NFL stars. So P. Ryan gets the ball and gets stood up immediately by Aaron Donald, who had who also had a monster game. Once the Rams figured out how to get single coverage on Aaron Donald, it was a wrap. Their, Joe Burrow couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't break off plays deep because he had no time to sit in the pocket and, you know, just basically like, fuck it. Jamar Chase is down somewhere. None of that. They had to get Joe Mixon involved on the ground early, short passes, this, that, whatever. Why the fuck, Zach Taylor, dude, why are you handing the ball off to P. Ryan on third and one? You're taking the ball out of not only Joe Burrow's hands, you took it out of Joe Mixon's hands, who is signif- who is a significantly better back. I get it was a third down, but like third down in the Super Bowl with like a minute 40 left, you're down by a field goal. You have to give the ball. If you're running the ball, it has to go to Joe Mixon or it has to be a quarterback draw for Joe Burrow. To like not even give him the chance to get the first down with his legs or to, you know, pitch out to Jamar Chase on a hitch or a slant or shit, even do a bubble screen. Like, put the ball in the hands of your best players. Like, you're not winning P. Ryan against Aaron Donald. You might win Joe Mixon against Aaron Donald, but I severely doubt it because Aaron Donald is a fucking psycho on the football field. That just, like, and knowing that, you know, I, I could kind of understand why he did that because it's like, okay, it's four down territory. This is our, like, second down, basically. You know, a kind of fuck-off play. See if you can get them offside. See if you can, you know, maybe draw some unsportsmanlike conduct or some shit. But just knowing how your offensive line has been so battered throughout the game and how Joe Burrow has spent a significant amount of time on the floor. Like, a three-step drop, quick pitch and catch, at least get into field goal range. Like, anything other than that. That's what stood out to me the most, is the just lapse in judgment by Zach Taylor and Zach Taylor's coaching staff. And then, of course, what happens after that bungled third down? Aaron Donald storms into the backfield and sacks Joe Burrow, and the game's over. And the Los Angeles Rams are Super Bowl champions. Just an absolutely preposterous turn of events now I'm going to go ahead and just pull up the box score for this because I don't there was another bit of controversy and I say controversy um with quotes because I think it's it's bullshit there was a very heated debate about who the Super Bowl MVP should have been it was awarded to Cooper Cup and I felt that he was deserving of it He finished with, what was it, Uh, like nine receptions, eight receptions, 92 yards, and two touchdowns in the biggest game of the year. He did so basically being the only option on the perimeter for Matthew Stafford. More than that, the only option that Matthew Stafford had, period, especially without Odell Beckham. And I don't think I can pound this home enough. I mean, Cup... Uh, Daryl Henderson had a couple chunk plays that he broke off, but it was really just it was really just Cooper Cup. The Bengals were keying on him, and it almost worked. And I felt that he was deserving of the MVP because he's the Rams do not win this game if he is any less than this. 
it's true. I get that Aaron Donald is deserving as well for how insane he played. Um, I'm going to... What did he finish with? Two sacks, two tackles for losses, three quarterback hits. Like, I'm not saying that Aaron Donald did not deserve it. I just think that Cooper Cup in the Super Bowl. And I know I shouldn't include the rest of the season, but I feel obligated to because he should have been the and he should have been just the MVP overall after the season that this guy had for him to close it out. And I forgot to mention that another instance of just putting the ball in the hands of your best player. I don't know what took Sean McVay so long, but there was that one. Um, I guess it's I guess it's considered a jet sweep and not a touch pass because um, well, late in the game, it was uh, either third or fourth and short. In Cincinnati territory, Matt Stafford sends Cup in motion and hands the ball off to him. He makes a cut and gets seven yards, and the Rams are cooking. I don't know why Sean McVay wasn't doing more stuff like that earlier in the game. Especially, again, it's not like Odell went down late and you had to readjust your game plan. Like, he went down before halftime. You could have gone into the locker room and just sat with the team and said, Coop, we're going to lean on you. We're going to ask you to do a lot. I would have put the ball in Cup's hands as much as possible. Screens, uh, bubble screens, some more motion action just so the defense can't just line up alongside from him and then not adjust their coverage in any way. Just like mix it up a little bit so the defense doesn't look at this same stagnated offense. Like you're looking at three, four, five guys split out wide, one in the backfield. It's easier to game plan. That way, if there's no motion, if you're not doing anything at the line of scrimmage, and of course, I'm sure that Sean McVay and Matt Stafford were in agreement, like, don't try to get too cute with it. Like, this Bengals defense is legit. We saw how they shut down the Kansas City Chiefs, who have one of the most talented teams in the history of football. Don't get cute with this defense. But there is a fine line between getting cute and kind of getting freaky getting funky like you know a trick play here or there when they did the um when they ran the pass with cooper cup i thought that was a decent play call because it was unique i think i forgot when it was exactly i felt the timing was a little off but it switched up the defense or it made the defense switch up and you had matt stafford Wide open for the first down. Unfortunately, Cooper Cup overthrew him, but that's neither here nor there. It was something different. And the Rams had the ability to do that. Cincinnati, not so much. Uh, Cincinnati definitely had an easier time just running a regular game plan. As you can see here, Joe Mixon, 72 yards on 15 attempts. I mean, he was his legs were chugging. He was doing a fantastic job for them. And when you have a running game like that, you don't have to do anything different in the passing game because the defense is going to respect them anyway. And it, clearly it worked out. You have 90 yards for Jamar Chase, 100 for T Higgins, 48 for Tyler Boyd, Tyler Boyd. Joe Burrow finishes with 263 passing yards on 22 of 33 while being sacked seven times. I mean, you could say that he played better than Matthew Stafford did. I know Stafford had a few more yards. His completion percentage was, I think, a little bit better, or maybe not, because he had 14 incomplete passes to Burrow's 11. Three touchdowns, albeit he did throw three picks. However, one the second one was not his fault, or I think it was the second one where it tipped off Skoranek's hand and got 
intercepted. The one where he yeeted it downfield uh, into single coverage, that was that was suspect. That was hella suspect. But I'm not going to sit here and say that Matt Stafford played a shitty game because he did not. That would be disingenuous of me to say. I do, however, think that Cubs should have been the MVP. Should have been the Super Bowl MVP. Roger Goodell needs to get on a flight, go to Aaron Rodgers' home, and take the MVP out of Aaron Rodgers' trophy case and give it to Cooper Cup because there is no one in the NFL, after seeing how these playoffs have unfolded, there is nobody who's more deserving of the NFL MVP award than Cooper Cup. If we can just head to his stat page for a second. This guy gets the triple crown in uh, the receiving triple crown. Is the offensive player of the year, finishes third in the MVP voting. I think he was the only guy who wasn't Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers to get a first place MVP vote. And then goes into the playoffs, accumulates the near 500 yards, has six more touchdown catches. The workload that Cooper Cup had to maintain all season long and the success that his team had because of it is a way more solid MVP case than anyone else. I get that Aaron Rodgers is a generational talent. I get that Aaron Rodgers is arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. But for Cooper Cup to do this after not showing I don't want to say not showing any signs of him being capable of doing this, but last year and the year before, we weren't talking about Cooper Cup in nearly the same tier that he is now. He had more or almost more total yards in this season alone than his two previous seasons combined. It was an absolutely tremendous jump. And Matthew Stafford, of course, played a a huge role in it. Just having a quarterback of his caliber can elevate a great receiver. Right, These two guys, I think, are on equal playing fields. The only difference is that when you're the quarterback, you can get more out of average receivers, which we saw Matthew Stafford do in Detroit, than a great receiver can get out of an average quarterback. Now, this brings me to a debate that, of course, X fucking exploded. The... Is Matthew Stafford? Matthew Stafford seems like an exceptional we'll guy. Yeah. He has a beautiful family, his wife, his story, all of that. He deserves this, what he did in Detroit, the loyalty, all of it. And he had a great game. But Dan, you on Get Up, you were a little out of control with <laughs> this is the best performance ever, and you got a little carried away with it. No, no, no. All I said was I, I heard this. I didn't hear. Yes, I pre watched the video. I'm sorry. I heard. Molly say that about Dan. And I'm like, okay. You know, that's not the craziest take, but my mind immediately goes to Eli Manning back in either 2007 or 2011. And I go and I check the stats. And Eli in 2007 was the same as Matthew Stafford was this year, which fucking blew my mind. I think it's one of the most clutch, if not the most clutch postseason stretches ever, performance-wise by a quarterback. Tampa Bay, San Francisco, Molly, literally, they've won three straight postseason games by three points. All three contained game-winning drives by Matthew Stafford. Never been done. I, I mean, it's not hyperbolic. It is a fact. 
the last quarterback to do it in a, a conference championship and a Super Bowl was your boy, Eli Manning. Eli Manning. And you say yep. that it locked up the Hall of Fame. So I'm just only using that as evidence to support that Matthew Stafford, because of yesterday, has one of the greatest clutch postseason runs ever, is a Hall of Famer and a Super Bowl champion. And this shirt that I'm wearing, I wore <laughs> yesterday to the game, and it smells like beer, but I'm wearing it again today. That's absolutely disgusting. And we all know that he's wearing like a $100 shirt underneath it, and he is just like that stank-ass fucking Bud Light smelling-ass shirt. I want nothing to do with it. However, getting back to the task at hand here before Stephen A and before Michael Irvin goes. I saw this when Rich, Richard Sherman had a fucking hella disrespectful quote basically talking about how the Hall of Fame doesn't mean anything and how, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to... I'm going to pull it up because I don't want to make Richard Sherman sound worse than he is. And again, I'm sure Richard Sherman is a very nice guy. I just think that he is incredibly off base in these remarks. I'm going to these are from his Twitter, by the way. I'm going to talk about it on the podcast but the Hall of Fame bar is incredibly low. Like a participation trophy, no All-Decade team, no All-Pro, no MVP, one Pro Bowl, not even MVP of the Super Bowl, never considered the best in any year he played. At least Matt Ryan has an MVP. He continues, he did nothing spectacular. It's really a microcosm of his career. Did good, not great. Made a few wow passes, made a few face palm passes. Aaron Donald and Vaughn are the two Hall of Famers he should thank. Of course, without a doubt, Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller are getting into the Hall of Fame. Uh, whenever, as soon as they retire, they're going to be in. There's no measuring stick that makes Stafford a Hall of Famer other than playing in the most pass-happy decade in NFL history. Inflated numbers make every QB that starts 10-plus years a Hall of Famer. He gets his day, brother, but just throwing around Hall of Fame like that just irks me. So many had to be the most dominant to make it. This is just the fact that Richard Sherman who one would think is an authority on this. Richard Sherman's a future Hall of Famer. One had one of the most dominant peaks that a cornerback has ever had. And for him to say this about Matthew Stafford, who didn't even have his most statistically impressive year this past season, is just it's just disrespectful. Like we're not talking about Ryan Fitzpatrick, a guy who is super beloved, had a couple good years here and there after rising from a backup role to take over a, a playoff team or whatever it was. Like, no. Matt Stafford, if he continues at this pace, will be in the Hall of Fame. I sincerely believe that. Maybe not now, obviously, because he just won his, his first Super Bowl, but, like, to talk about a guy who's top, who's already top 15 in, I think, both passing yards and passing touchdowns, like, this dude's had... Like 10 years, seven, eight, ten, seven, eight years or so. I'm going to fucking just look at the numbers now, actually. So we're going to start with passing touchdowns. He's been in the top 10 in passing touchdowns six times. He's got the 12th most passing touchdowns of any quarterback ever. The same goes with passing yards. He has the 12th most passing yards in the history of football. 
He's been top 10 in passing yards. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. The same guy who was throwing to Calvin Johnson turned Marvin Jones Jr. and Golden Tate into 1,000-yard receivers. Matt Stafford is also 11th in passes completed. Statistically, this guy has a Hall of Fame case, and motherfuckers were making the same argument against Eli. And we didn't even start talking about Eli as a Hall of Famer until he retired. After he had beaten Tom Brady in the Super Bowl twice. I mean, he did it once, and you could have put him into the Hall of Fame. But to think that motherfuckers do not value the statistical dominance of certain guys is absolutely insane to me. I mean, Eli Manning was only a four-time pro bowler. Like, the breadth of talent at the quarterback position over the last 20 years. Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Michael Vick had a couple solid years. Matt Ryan, Drew Brees, um, and now with all the new guys, Ben Roethlisberger, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. The quarterback position in the NFL now is not dissimilar from the point guard position in the NBA where it is so packed with talent that the only way to stand out is to be the last guy standing, is to be a champion. Because the statistics, everyone is so good that they're putting up similar numbers. But Matthew Stafford has been doing this forever, right? This guy had a fucking 5,000 passing yard season in his third year. He was 23 years old and threw for 5,000 yards. Like, I, 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 don't, I, I, just, I don't understand how Richard Sherman, a guy who knows football, probably better than 99% of people who have played, someone who's excelled at his position, can look at Matt Stafford, who is not done playing yet. He could still probably play for another four or five years and not think that he's going to be a Hall of Famer when it's all said and done. Now let's get back to what everyone else has to say about this. And I know somebody said that they would trust a different quarterback in that game over Matthew Stafford was and me. was wrong. That was me. I mean, that was me. Joe Burrow might have been the better quarterback that, 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 last night. You're out of here. your mind. Okay. First of all, it's a couple of things. <clears throat> Let's tell the American people the truth. Dan oh, my God, Lofton. Stephen. They First get to of all, it. he's absolutely right about the playoff run Matthew Stafford had. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely right about the fact that this performance has solidified the fact that Matthew Stafford is a future Hall of Famer. There is no denying it. Okay. Um, you know, I don't like how Dan tries to act like everybody didn't notice that Matthew Stafford had mad skills and that he was contaminated by being a Detroit lineman. Every year, every season, when the end of the year rolled around, people looked at Matt Stafford's box score and went, holy shit, this guy's a fucking demon. Every year, year after year. Yet he was overshadowed by playing in in a... smaller market not a premier market by any means and just playing on a team that was not up to his talent level once Calvin Johnson left like people people forget people forget that on a numbers basis Matt Stafford is in line with the best of them Okay, one of the worst franchises in the history of football okay which it continues to prove it every chance they get okay Matthew Stafford, the great Matthew Stafford, with a multitude of game-winning drives on his resume before he ever arrived in Los Angeles, had a record of 74-90 and 90 as a quarterback for the Detroit Lions. Yeah. So think about that. 
game-winning drives. Without them, it would have been even worse. So we know how his skill set speaks uh, to the fact Let's that he— Let's actually—because I did notice that. I did notice that Matt Stafford had— he led, He's led the league in game-winning <laughs> game drives three times. He's got 42 for his career. Do they have all-time stats of this? I wonder. Um, look at this man. What are we? What are we doing? The seventh most game-winning drives in NFL history, behind Matt Ryan, Brett Favre, Dan Marino, Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and he has not played nearly as long as some of these guys. I mean, like, it's just, it's so, it's so asinine to even, like, to not even acknowledge the, like, to not even acknowledge that this is a debate. Like, to just be like, oh, the Hall of Fame is a participation trophy now. It's disrespectful, man. It's just contaminated by being a part of a of a weak French. No, no, no. They, I'm not. I'm not taking shots at anybody. I speak yes, facts. He is, dude. He's talking the shit. The Detroit Lions are a horrible organization. Now I hope they get better because I love the city of Detroit. I love its fan base. You know what I'm saying? I love it when I get. I can't wait to get back there and to check out downtown and the whole bit. But it damn sure ain't gonna be to see the piss uh, to, to see the Detroit Lions. <laughs> the and and to, let me throw the Pistons in there too. I mean, damn, they're horrible as well. Even though I believe in my man Troy Weaver and his vision, and I think they'll go in the right direction. But when it comes to Matthew Stafford specifically, we needed to see what we saw yesterday. And I believe, and we'll get into Odell Beckham Jr. later. I believe if Odell Beckham Jr. hadn't gotten hurt, yeah. this wouldn't have even been close. We wouldn't oh, have had yeah. an opportunity easy, to see easy. late game heroics by Matthew easy. Stafford. But what and I tweeted about this before the game. All I wanted, because I got I, I got I got I got no chips in this game. I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, okay? But all I wanted to see, and I was if begging Odell, to see this. If Odell doesn't get hurt, he's putting up he's putting up two hundred yards. I I firmly believe that. I wanted Matthew Stafford to get a lead and to hand the ball to Joe Burrow against Aaron Donald and Von Miller. All the things that we have been saying, myself included, about that. Joe Burrow, even it. with the suspect offensive that. line, yeah. I said, right. that's what I wanted, and that's right. what we got. It came down to right. the wire, yeah. and it was like, Joe Burrow, what you got against these boys? And we found out as special as he is and as special as he is going to be, <clears throat> right. Aaron Donald is a different monster. Yeah. And boy, was he special. Floor is yours, playmaker. And he rose up in the most crucial moments yeah. and made those plays. It was it was a phenomenal. Dan, I know you were out here. Stephen A., I wish you would have come out here. This Super Bowl was made for you. Yeah. This is Hollywood. Yeah. It was big time. Everywhere you on, went, man? there were superstars. And everybody said, where's Stephen A.? Where's... Where's the big superstar, Stephen? Everybody was looking for you. I said I got to spank him from long distance. I'm going to just have to spank oh, him from long distance. <laughs> now, let me get to Matthew Stafford. Because, you know, let me get to Matthew Stafford. Let me, let, let me tell you something. Because we're talking about what did he gain with his legacy. And, it's, and, and we were talking about the Hall of Fame. And, and we, we got a lot of guys that went in the Hall this week. How do you get in the Hall of Fame? You either have to have those numbers or you have to have what we call memorable moments made in time that we, that, that we can attach yeah. ourselves to. Kurt Warner, the last Rams quarterback, led the greatest show on turf. You know, and, and, and this for Matthew Stafford 
in in the way it went about is this memorable moment here. Super Bowl, the Super Bowl hasn't been in in, in LA since I caught a couple of touchdowns mm. in that thing, and I'm an old man that can barely walk, let alone talking about run. And, 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 and now they got they have two teams there. They got the most beautiful stadium in the world, and everybody came out. Right. Okay. So that was a very, very, very long-winded take from Michael Irvin, but like Eli remains the most apt comparison for this because it it really is the most fitting. Like Eli goes to the Super, the Giants go to the Super Bowl in 07, and they win, right? And if they don't go back and win in 2011, I still think that if Eli's career plays out the same, he's getting into the Hall. Because he had the numbers, right? Granted, he did play a long time, had a lot of yards, a lot of interceptions. He, he was a gunslinger, right? Eli was a true gunslinger. But you can't look at this guy, this guy Eli Manning, this derpy-looking dude from Mississippi or wherever the fuck he was from, and overlook him going up against Tom Brady and Randy Moss, two of the best at their position, in what was probably the best seasons they've ever had. 50 passing touchdowns for Tom Brady, 23 receiving touchdowns for Randy Moss, and they got fucking clapped, okay? They got clapped. Randy Moss and Tom Brady lost to Eli Manning and Plaxico Burris. Like, we're gonna... We're gonna have this debate forever with Matt Stafford, but I think that just, like, overall, it's fucking insane to me that Richard Sherman was disrespectful enough to be like, oh, yeah, it's a participation trophy. Like, yo, he just participated in the fucking Super Bowl. And he participated in winning the Super Bowl. Like, I I, I don't get it. But we're going to shift off of this. Once again, c- congratulations to the LA Rams. But we're going to shift over to another football story. We will talk a little bit of hoops in, in a few minutes. But the Cardinals have beef with their star player. And it goes to show that... If you're a young player who commands a lot of attention, whether you're in baseball, basketball, football, there is going to be hella shit talked about you. But this, this is a very, very interesting scenario. So it started a couple days ago when Kyler Murray does what every young star does when there is a rift between him and the organization. He goes to his social medias and he removes all association from the team. He archives the pictures. He takes the team out of their bio. Um, and he just pretends like he's, you know, he's just no thoughts, just vibes. Just chilling in Arizona or uh, I don't even know where he stays at in the offseason. But this is uh, courtesy of ESPN. It doesn't have an author attributed to it. I think it's just uh, it's just an aggregation. Kyler Murray posted on Instagram on Monday that, quote, all of this nonsense is not what I'm about. And he vowed to, quote, grow and get better. A day after sources had described the Cardinals quarterback to ESPN's Chris Mortensen as self-centered, immature, and someone who points fingers. Already, just major irony alert. Red flag is that this source comes from inside the organization. The organization, someone who doesn't work with Kyler Murray on a daily basis is saying this about him. Quote, 
I play this game for the love of it, my teammates, everyone who's helped me get to this position that believed in me and to win championships. All of this nonsense is not what I'm about, never have been, never will be. Anyone has ever stepped between those lines with me knows how hard I go. Love me or hate me, but I'm going to continue to grow and get better. Mortensen reported via sources Sunday that Murray, who scrubbed any reference to the Cardinals from his Instagram account recently, is frustrated with the franchise, was embarrassed by the team's 34-11 playoff loss to the Los Angeles Rams, and thinks he has been made the scapegoat. Meanwhile, Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury is said to be self-scouting to find better ways of helping Murray and select veterans on the team hope to reach out to Murray on how the 24-year-old can better handle adversity. This is why the differentiation in the beef needs to be between the players and the front office. Because the front office, they're all dipshits, right? Most people who work front office positions in one of the major sports, they don't know anything about player relations. They don't know anything about player development. They're not too invested in the on-the-field product. It's just a job for them. I'm not saying all because I know this is not true for all, but a lot of people just look at it as a business job, and it's ran like a business, which is true, but you can't, especially when you know that this business is going to create a lot of money, which it does, especially in football, you cannot be so fucking dog shit at player relations okay you need to get the fuck out you need to let the coaching staff and the players handle what happens on the field you need to you need to serve the players and the coaches if you're in the front office it is your job to listen to those who actually execute the game plan and see how you can better serve them and bring in guys who can help them like coach kingsbury uh, you know, guys like Chandler Jones, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Green. I'm sure all of these guys are looking at Kyler Murray, who's 24, who is a star in the NFL, who has the potential to be, you know, in the tier of like Russell Wilson, maybe not like a super duper star, but a quarterback who can potentially lead your team to a Super Bowl, someone who is just in a playmaker who gets it done on the football field, hopefully for longer than 10 weeks. Like, it's their job to help Kyler Murray through this, to help him be the franchise player that they want him to be. Like, because they like they don't want this. They don't want their quarterback being upset because it's going to reflect poorly on them. The team is essentially going to crumble, and this is a big year for Arizona. They're losing a lot of key players. I think um, both James Conner and Chase Edmonds are free agents. Christian Kirk is a free agent. There are a bunch of playmakers on defense who are free agents. And this is just not what needs to be going on right now. Despite the acrimony, the Cardinals expect things to calm down and for Murray to be their quarterback of the present and future. Murray had recently cleared his Instagram account of all but two posts, one of him in a Sooners uniform from, 20, from uh, 2018 and another that included nine pictures of him from this year's Pro Bowl. Murray is headed into the final year of his rookie contract and Arizona has until May 2nd to pick up the fifth-year option. However... Murray is also eligible to negotiate a new deal now that he's completed his third season. He's currently scheduled to earn a little bit less than a million dollars in 2022, but combined with a four and a half million dollar roster bonus that's fully guaranteed on the fifth day of the league year, but yeah, Murray will take home about five and a half million. If Murray wants a new deal before his fourth NFL season, he'll have recent president to refer to. Josh Allen <laughs> got a six-year contract worth upwards of 250 million in August. 
in his first three seasons, Murray has been rookie of the year, two Pro Bowls, yada, 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 yada. I, like, I, it's so frustrating to read this story because it just shows one of these systemic issues that the NFL has where the team feels that they are bigger than their star players when everybody knows that this is not the case. The NBA has made this shift already to prioritize their star players to make it a player's league. The NFL is not ready to do that quite yet. They fear players becoming bigger than the league, which is kind of, which really isn't even a thing because when LeBron blows up and Steph blows up and Kai and Giannis and Nikola Jokic and all these guys blow up, it just amplifies the league, especially in a case like the NBA where three of their top players, three of the MVP candidates this season are international players from three different countries. Like, that's huge for the league. The NFL, I think because they're fucking privileged enough to be the de facto sport in America, to have routine, to have more people watch them than anything else on TV. Like, they're privileged that they don't have to worry about league expansion, which, I mean, they are trying to do. They're pl- they play in London. They're setting up, I think, to have five exhibition games in Germany over the next couple of years. Like, they should want this. They should want these guys to be at the forefront of league expansion. But the organizations are like, no. Kyler Murray's is, what did they say he was? They said he's self-centered, immature, and someone who points fingers. How the fuck are you going to be the pot and call the kettle black and look at Kyler Murray and goes, he's immature and he's pointing fingers? You are quite actually, I don't know who the fuck, (laughs) who the fuck did this, but you need to put your name on this because you're pointing fingers at Kyler Murray and you're being immature because what you should be doing is you get this, you get a fucking, I don't know how the fuck it works. You get a text from PR and they're like, Oh, you know, there's a little, there's rumors floating around that Kyler is unhappy. And instead of being like, we've seen the reports about the tension between us and Kyler Murray, we refute them. They're baseless. They're simply untrue. We love Kyler, and we want Kyler to remain in Arizona for the rest of his career. But some fucking dickhead in the public relations department is like, no, let's not say that. Meanwhile, whenever there's any type of scandal in the NFL, whenever there's anything, the organization is always like, deny, deny, deny. So why do you not deny these reports? It doesn't make any sense. It's just like, it's just another case of an organization shooting themselves in the foot for no reason like right now your priority instead of bullying your fucking franchise player is to try to make sure that you don't give this guy reason to leave right i just mentioned how you have all these guys entering free agency and you might not have the cap to sign them what are you gonna do are you gonna retain zach ertz are you going to retain Christian Kirk? Are you going to make sure that your running that your running game just doesn't fucking fall apart? Are you going to make sure that you don't get manhandled by a division rival in the first round of the playoffs this year? It's just something to consider. It's just something to cons- it's just something for the Cardinals organization to consider. Like it's just fucking 
it's insane. Like NBA teams, people in NBA teams know how to handle this. When reports come out that a star player is unhappy, you don't feed into it, right? The fucking Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, who just traded James Harden, who was behind, who was unhappy behind closed doors. And again, there were reports circulating leading up to the trade deadline where he had no intention of staying in Brooklyn. He didn't want to play in Brooklyn. He never wanted to play with KD and Kyrie. Philadelphia was his first choice. And what did the Nets do? Steve Nash comes out and sits and takes questions. And you guys know how much I love to bash Steve Nash. I'm actually going to apologize to him in a little bit. And he says, we're not trading James Harden. There you go. That's all you have to say. Someone comes up to you and there's and is like, there's beef? And you're like, no, no beef. It's just the media, you know, doing their thing, which is fine. You know, the media, they like to drum up stories, like to bring a little bit of dramatics to the table. But like, it all of a sudden becomes much less playful when you're feeding into it. And then you're alienating your star player. And he's like, I don't want to fucking play here. Like, I don't want to deal with this bullshit. Like, the organization isn't behind me. Even though he knows that Coach Kingsbury, uh, Klingsbury, what the fuck is his name? Kingsbury, I'm fucking so bad. God, I'm the worst. Like, Coach Kingsbury and whatever veterans are reaching out to him, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing crisis management when it's not their job to do crisis management. It's their job to manage the team and the game plan. Like, it's fuck. It's fucking weird, dude. And we're at an hour. We are cruising, man. So we're gonna finally jump over to some NBA talk. And man, I just have to say, I have to say this. I gotta go full screen for a second. I wanna apologize to Steve Nash. Kind of. I still think that he isn't the greatest coach in the world. But as we know. Seth Curry and Andre Drummond made their debuts for the Brooklyn Nets on Monday. The Nets beat the Sacramento Kings quite handily, quite handily, and it just the vibes have been rejuvenated. Like I was legitimately excited to watch the Nets play yesterday, and this is with no Kevin Durant. This is with no Kyrie Irving because they had to play at home, and it was all because James Harden's gone. And we're gonna get to we're gonna get to um, some updates with the situation in a little bit. But I was watching the game yesterday, and you know, I don't think Steve Nash is as bad of a coach as I thought he was. So I'm just gonna come out. I'm gonna apologize to Mr. Steve Nash. One of my biggest critiques of him was that the game plan was non-existent, no thoughts, just vibes. That was Steve Nash's coaching style. I still have beef with how he uses rotations, but I think. I mean, now it'll be justifiable because he's got to integrate a couple new guys into into the roster, so whatever. But I'm watching this team play yesterday. And the go-to guy last night was Seth Curry. Seth Curry and Patty Mills were the go-to guys, and Cam Thomas as well. And I'm watching the ball skip around. I'm watching it go from Curry to Mills to Javon Carter to Drummond back to Curry, who then uses Drummond as a as a screener and then finds a little pocket pass for an easy bucket. It was actually fun watching this team play. On Monday, which is not something I could, which is not something I've been able to say for like almost a month, probably more than that. But like everything about this team just looks different. Seth, Drummond, they bring versatility to an offense that badly needed it. And maybe the whole stagnant offense wasn't Steve Nash's fault. Maybe it was actually James Harden. Maybe. It was James Harden reverting to his old ways 
as kind of like a giant middle finger to the organization, which is fucking stupid of him. I I I agree with that wholeheartedly. But Seth being able to create his own shot, being able to work in the pick and roll, being able to play alongside Patty Mills, which is going to be huge in the playoffs and down the stretch of the seasons, having Seth Curry play off of other ball handlers, something that you didn't get with James Harden. I mean, you get it with Kyrie Irving as well. Kyrie is very receptive to playing, you know, a different style of basketball. But when he wants to be the go-to guy, you're going to allow him to be the go-to guy. And it was really just, it was very pleasant overall just watching this team move the ball around and get easy shots, get open shots, get high percentage shots. Watch this team play with effort on both ends of the floor. Watch this team not give up second chance points. Watch this team actually get second chance point the second chance points themselves courtesy of someone like Andre Drummond who I've been a fan of Andre Drummond for a, a while. I thought that when he was in Detroit, he was overshadowed um just by being in Detroit. And you know, sometimes being asked to do a little bit more than he was capable of. But guys are walking double-double like could get 18 and 14 in his sleep basically. But one of the things that I always thought about Drummond was that his passing is so underrated. He just has it. He's got it, dude. He's got it. He's got the passing big genes. Obviously not to the level of Nikola Jokic. Let's not get it twisted. But, you know, being able to pass out of a double team. Being able to pass out of... Being able to pass out as the role man to the open guy in the corner. Or back out to whoever's up top. The little things that just open up the offense. Like, no disrespect, but Blake Griffin, who also is a very, very talented passer. He doesn't bring enough on offense to warrant the defense um, overreacting to him. And LaMarcus Aldridge just really, he, he's just he's a scoring big for the Brooklyn Nets, straight up. But I think that Drummond's, his just size, like this dude is like seven feet tall, 260 pounds. This is a mammoth man. And watching him go up against DeMontis Sabonis, a very talented big in his own right, a guy who can get you 20 points, you know, from a variety of areas, is going to post up, like, plays a more mixed role between traditional and contemporary. And Drummond, you know, stood his ground. He was he stood there in the paint, didn't get tossed around, and just clogged everything up. And when you have a guy who's that big, just the intimidation factor alone is enough to make the opposing offense think differently. So now, now that that's over, now that I'm done um, apologizing to Steve Nash, we're going to talk about well, first of all, James Harden reportedly failed to <laughs> reportedly failed to get his extension. He didn't opt into his extension in time. So we're just gonna play a little uh we're just gonna We'll cut that before I get DMCA'd. But that was a minor news story that uh, came out during his press conference, which I don't really give too much of a fuck about because what's there to give a fuck about? There was this amazing article written by Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher about the quote-unquote Cold War between Kevin Durant and James Harden. Now, I don't know who's the Soviet Union in this instance. I also don't know who is the United States in this instance, I don't believe any, I don't believe Kevin Durant or James Harden has nuclear warheads, which is good. But 
it seems to me that James Harden would be the United States because he did not want to redistribute the wealth to the rest of his teammates. He wanted to play Harden ball. He wanted to ISO. He wanted to be the focal point of the offense. Kevin Durant's like, listen, bro, I'm like 100 in athlete years. I'm coming off an Achilles injury. I'll redistribute to whoever the fuck is going to make shots around me. Joe Harris, Kyrie Irving, Patty Mills. But there was a lot, a lot in this article. And I really don't want to read the whole thing because I will literally be here for another three hours. So I'm just going to uh, skim this real quick. Just talking about, you know, the... uh, the conversation or the whole incident with the All-Star Game draft, yada, yada. Based on conversations with Brooklyn figures and those close to Durant, it's clear that the Harden blockbuster trade for Ben Simmons wouldn't have occurred without Durant's blessing. As more and more Nets personnel faced the reality approaching the trade deadline that Harden wanted out, Durant's approval mattered more than anyone else's. This is par for the course when you have a super-duper star like Kevin Durant, someone who has been involved in every major decision the franchise has made, which Jake Fisher points out. Hiring Steve Nash. Um, drafting Cam Thomas, which I didn't know about. Uh, even trading for James Harden, allowing him, allowing the Nets organization to part with a lot of pieces to bring in James Harden. Kevin was like, fuck it. James isn't bringing shit. Another figure with <laughs> knowledge added, quote, I don't think that would have happened without Kevin making that decision. Like, Kev- KD was fed up. You could tell that even on the Thursday, the Thursday All Star, the Thursday night All Star Game draft, like he was, he was not with it. Like I'm sure he'll laugh about it in a few years, but just to kind of like I, f- I would feel that it's almost like wasted because everyone. Well, I don't want to know why I say everyone knew James Harden didn't want to be there, but even James was like, "Oh yeah, Brooklyn wasn't my first option." Yada yada. Of course, I don't. He's probably just reading some PR bullshit for weeks. He had grown wary of Harden's purported commitment to the franchise. When Harden first took to the bench with right hamstring tightness, Durant was among the Brooklyn figures who were skeptical of the injury's severity. Quote, Kevin's the the one that pulled the trigger on this. Kevin's the one that said, do this deal. There was growing concern that this entire season would be lost and they'd lose James for nothing. Uh, Yeah. James Harden, this is also not in the article, but Harden also downplayed Kyrie's decision not to get vaccinated um, in his, um, as as one of the reasons why he didn't or why he wanted to leave, I'm calling bullshit on that one. That is, that's simply not true. Another thing, Durant was the one who went to the organization and was like, Kyrie has to come back. So uh, I have to, I have to criticize Kevin Durant on this. He knew this, like, I, I don't even want to rehash this because you guys know my opinion on it. You should have just done it from the beginning. Like, just let Kyrie come back. Because we all knew this was going to be an issue. Moving on. Uh, there may have been the final moment Durant and Harden were aligned. Harden also wanted Irving's help and made several public jabs. At, yeah. <laughs> Quote, Kevin and James had a cold war going for the last several months that made everyone miserable. Come December, word started to percolate around the NBA about a mounting disconnect between Harden and Durant, which was booed by Irving's absence. Meanwhile, Joel Embiid was returning to the player that he once was. Um, the previous offseason, this is a couple paragraphs. Before the previous offseason, um, 
Previous offseason, Los Angeles pickup runs with Durant and Irving planted the idea in Harden's mind to flee the Houston Rockets. This summer, Harden and Durant never entered the same gym, and Durant was disappointed by the poor conditioning Harden sported during those early Nets practices. Harden was also increasingly candid about wanting to test free agency for the first time. It wasn't a concern at first, but Harden joined Brooklyn to be part of a big three. With Irving inactive and a greater workload heaped onto Harden and Durant, a strain formed between the Nets' two active alphas. Again, this does go back to Kyrie Irving, although James Harden is not completely absolved in this case. Sixers figures spoke of how Embiid fully embraced becoming Philly's lifeblood with Simmons out of the picture. Other league observers posited Embiid was auditioning for his next co-star. Harden saw another talent hungering for his first... Dude, Embiid was not in di- was not auditioning for anybody. You're not putting up 30 and 11 and auditioning for co-stars. There's no audition necessary. You're just playing your game and people are like, I want to fucking play with that guy. He's, he's a fucking demon. Uh, Kyrie was not being held accountable and Kyrie being allowed to do whatever he wanted. James being his age knows, knows he doesn't have time to waste. This is also true. Uh, I have questioned Kyrie's commitment to winning a championship, just not because of what he does when he's on the court, because when he is on the court, he's, he's Kyrie Irving, you know, but it's the things that he's not doing that he's doing off the court that question my commitment. As winter arrived, Nets personnel started telling rival team contacts about the troubling dynamic between Durant and Harden, venting during social gatherings and pregame activities. Harden's poor conditioning didn't help his slow adjustment to the NBA's new rule changes. Durant and Nash wanted a a free-flowing offense, which Mike D'Antoni had helped install last season. But Harden preferred his patented iso ball. Brooklyn coaches noticed Harden would roll his eyes when an after-timeout play was designed for Durant, sources said. That's absolutely preposterous. You are James Harden. You have no reason to be rolling your eyes when they draw up a play for Kevin Durant, who statistically is better than you, right? No dumbass is going to draw up a play where you need to get a bucket and not give the ball to Kevin Durant. That's fucking silly. It's fucking silly. Uh, Many of today's superstars are passive-aggressive, one NBA coach told BR. I don't think that's true. Well, I think that's true, yes. But I also think that, like, stars have always been like that. Like, they've always been... They've You're either a passive-aggressive NBA star or you're just a fucking dickhead, right? Like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's a fucking dickhead. LeBron is passive-aggressive. You're the same person. You're the same, like, personality type. You just have different ways of expressing it. And it's hard not to be like that when... Dude, uh, NBA players, I don't know how often they say that they don't have egos. You cannot be as talented as a LeBron, a Giannis, a Kawhi, a KD, and not have an ego, right? You have to know that when you go into that locker room, you're the fucking guy. You have to know that when you step out on the court with those nine other guys, unless they're from that small select group, you're the best guy on the court almost every night. And even if you aren't the best guy on the court, it's it's a marginal difference. Like when the Lakers play the Nets, Kevin Durant and LeBron know that okay, we're we're the we're these fucking dudes. Like we are the we are these bitches right now. Like how how would you not? Like how do you not be kind of passive aggressive, especially in instances when you do have to play with another personality, and they're not fucking, the vibes are just not there. After you thought they would be. Uh, yada, yada, yada. 
Yeah, it's uh, now they're just talking about Harden, his uh, the te- the deterioration of his hamstring, yada yada. Uh, before Durant and Irving chose the Nets as free agents in 2019, Marks had con- had constantly sold his vision of a culture rooted in family, an account an accountability to each other, an idea that nobody was bigger than the collective goal. That ethos had evaporated by February. I've mentioned this time and time again. Sean Marks became the general manager of a rebuilding team, the type of team where you need to have that mentality. You need guys to buy in to the rebuild, and that's the way to do it. It's like we are a family. We are going to prioritize player development, yes, but you guys have to produce on the court because ultimately a bunch of young guys, they're playing for the next contract, their first big contract, and that will either before a contending team or hopefully they're able to turn their team into a contending team but when you have stars culture is bullshit like everyone tries to fucking bring up the Nets culture culture this culture that how about you culture some bitches because these guys like they don't give a fuck about any of that they want to win they want to win titles right that's the culture the culture is winning there's a cultural shift to prioritize bringing home championships right the culture conversation is so fucking stupid when you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden all wearing the same damn uniform. This, gone are the days of Jared Allen, D'Angelo Russell, and Karis LeVert. Spencer Dinwiddie's gone. The only OG Brooklyn net left is Joe Harris, right? And I'm sure if you talk to him, he's like, yeah, the culture's different, but like we're playing for a championship now. We don't have time to worry about all this ancillary bullshit. We don't have time to worry about the league-wide perception of us and what our culture is like because we're while we're developing young talent, we're also simultaneously trying to attract bigger free agents and marquee free agents so that way we can build a contender. Like, it's a different conversation now. And people just, like, don't want to acknowledge this. I understand it's the internet and people want to, you know, shit post and, you know, do stuff like that. But, like, I understand that because, you know, I, ex- I exclusively shit post on the internet. Like Twitter is Twitter and TikTok, they're not the places to have intellectual um discussions about the political power struggle between stars within an NBA organization. You're there to post memes. Of, you're there to post fucking memes like this. Where is it? This is what we're here to do. This is this is what we're here to do. Post fucking memes about JFK still being alive if Russell Westbrook was the shooter. God damn. Um, Harden didn't arrive at the Jazz game until halftime. When it concluded and Brooklyn continued with its planned itinerary, Harden flew to Vegas. That sure sounds like James, doesn't it? Apparently, like, this is something that I didn't know about James, but, like, he was kind of just, like, wherever the fuck he wanted to be when he was with the Rockets. Granted, of course, you have that freedom when you're a superstar. I mean, fuck, if Dennis Rodman can do it, like, you're going to let James Harden do it. But, um, like, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not a good look, man. It's not a good look when your team is losing. That's the difference. When you're winning, you can do shit like that. And no one's going to question it because you're winning. Who fucking cares? But when you're losing seven, eight, nine, ten games in a row, maybe don't see, maybe don't fly to Houston to see some cheeks clap, man. That might, that's just me, but whatever. 
People in Brooklyn still wanted to trust Harden. They needed him healthy for their inevitable run at a championship that everyone had pledged to make together. By all accounts, Durant maintained that faith as long as he could. Quote, Kevin always had a hope that this situation could get better. I, a lot of Nets fans as well. Um, We were kind of blinded by the situation because you're going to look at it through rose-colored glasses regardless. Um, We wanted the situation to rectify because, listen, I'm happy with the trade. I'm happy with how the trade turned out. But, like, James Harden is still a guy who gives you 22 and 10. He's still giving you 22 points and 10 assists on the season, right? You're not getting that elsewhere. And, like, on paper, yeah, this Nets team fully healthy is a title contender. Like, there's, it's not a shock that they opened up as title favorites over Milwaukee, who had just, who was coming off of winning the title. But, like, as the trade deadline got closer, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, this this has to happen. This has to happen. We were, <laughs> I don't want to say we were being gaslit because I hate that word, but yeah, it felt like Harden was gaslighting everybody. Quote, Kevin knew the trade was going to go down. Or that is until Harden finally voiced uh, yada yada. Harden stepped into another night of clubbing. He knew the trade was going to go down. Okay, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's just a fucking, an absolute mess. Maury knows the fickleness of NBA alphas as well as any executive. Each of his pairings for Harden and Houston fell short of championship goals, but Maury stood defiant that the Sixers would trade Simmons for a star of Harden's caliber. Maury also... Maury saw so many all-star tandems combust with his Rockets that he may even have been overconfident that another marquee player would soon seek a new destination, either before the trade deadline or during the offseason. Harden, Dame, Bradley Beal were always at the top of his list. Simmons camp, however, uh, we're talking about Ben Simmons now. I'm sorry, we're not, this is a James Harden segment. Like, yeah. And then they start talking about tampering, which is absolutely hysterical because the NBA is not going to fucking do anything about this. The NBA loves tampering. Tampering equals drama. And the NBA is a reality TV show. They're a basketball league first, right? But they're only a basketball league for two and a half hours a night. The other uh, 20, 21 and a half, 22 and a half, no, 21 and a half, they're a reality TV show. They love the drama. They love the drama as long as it's, you know, not someone fucking going to jail, right? Because that's not drama. That's just, that's just sad. But uh, also, fuck all you dickheads who are like, oh, Ben Simmons looks fine now that he's in Brooklyn. Uh, kind of weird how as soon as he leaves Philadelphia, his uh, his mental his mental health suddenly gets significantly better. I saw that dipshit Spike Eskin, whatever the fuck his name is, like him, not just him. He's not the only dipshit who's posting cringe on main like that. Like, dude, like way to just fucking self-report that one. You cannot empathize with someone having mental health issues, and two that you've never like. That you've seen, you're because you're coming off as ignorant at that point to downplay someone's, or you're coming off as ignorant because do you not know what it's like being mentally unwell? Are you not aware of how much of a toll having a shitty job, being in a shitty relationship, whether it's with your parents, with your significant other, how much that can weigh on you and how much better you feel? When that gets lifted. Or even if it's something as simple as. 
how shitty you feel when it's dark at 4 o'clock as opposed to how great you feel when it's dark at 7 o'clock. Do you not... There's like no way for you to comprehend that. You're just ignorant to the fact that a change of scenery for a young person like Ben Simmons, who is tasked with, you know, being a fucking celebrity while simultaneously being treated as a robot. Like that's just an overarching, that's just the overarching theme here is that even though Kevin, uh, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and countless other athletes have come out as you know dealing with their own mental health issues whether it's depression whether it's anxiety whatever it may be how open they've been about them and how devastating stuff like that can be not just for them but for everybody because listen man you're an athlete you're ben simmons you're kevin love you're demar derozan you're whomever you're still a human right but being an athlete is this weird and being an entertainer as well being an athlete is this weird double-edged sword where you're where you're larger than life and you bring a lot of people joy for a couple of hours a week or whatever and then beyond that you're treated almost like subhumanly and some people may hear that and they're like oh well what the fuck this guy's making oh 24 million dollars a year to play a game it's like yeah that's great and everything but ultimately it's still a job right you still have human problems that you have to deal with granted you may have different problems because first of all you don't have to worry about your shelter you don't have to worry about feeding your family you don't have to worry about clothing your kids which is nice but you still have to deal with the other interpersonal issues that people deal with right you still just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that you can't it doesn't mean that you can't have problems with your parents, with your spouse, with your siblings, with extended cousins and aunts and uncles whom you've never talked to coming up to you and asking for things and just being constantly shit on by various media personalities. I mean, dude, you're LeBron James, right? And you're at the Super Bowl and you're watching 50 Cent perform in the club, hanging upside down, looking like fucking Batman. <laughs> And you're watching him perform this and motherfuckers are hating on you. Talking about just like bullshit. Like that's, it's insane to me. It's absolutely preposterous to me that we're still at this age. We're still at this point in time where athletes are more accessible than ever, more culturally present than ever. And they're still like, are probably treated Oh, I can't even say treated worse. Now. I'm not going to make that comparison. I feel that's off base. But they're still treated like shit in a lot of cases, right? If you go to any athlete's Instagram comments, and I don't advise you to do this because it is accessible, you're just going to see bullshit after bullshit after bullshit. And to think that, like, that stuff doesn't weigh on you. Because even if you don't see it, even if you're not on social media, you still can't just be like, wow, there's someone out there hating on me today. There's someone out there who is wishing death upon my family just because I play for the Philadelphia 76ers or because I play for the Brooklyn Nets. Like, that's fucking preposterous. Um, like, do you not see how that could be problematic? And then also, not even that. In Ben Simmons' case, granted, like, Doc Rivers wasn't like, I'm going to kill your dad or anything. But, like, 
the situation between them was not the best. And the Sixers only made it worse by being like, oh, James Harden is available? Well, shit, Joel Embiid's untouchable, but Ben Simmons, we can trade him. Like, dog, what's what's going on here? Like, if you just come out and be like, hey, Ben, look, we lo- we like you a lot. We think that you're a great player. But, you know, you don't get to trade for James Harden all the time. And I already said this last week. Is Ben Simmons totally absolved from how he acted with the Philadelphia 76ers? No. Whether it was him doing it or whether it was his agency operating on behalf of him, it was not good. It was not good either way. But when you are in a toxic relationship, there is not always just one person who's at fault. Because again, it is a relationship. There are multiple moving pieces to it. And if someone is treating you like garbage constantly, or just, you know, kind of not, you, or you just feel slighted by them. Like, it's also your responsibility to open up about it before it gets out of hand. Especially if you're an athlete. When you know if it goes public, it's just, it's going to be the worst thing ever. It's going to be a, this was a eight-month-long shit show between Philadelphia and Ben Simmons. An eight-month-long eight shit show. There were times over the last half a year or so where on this show, there would be new Ben Simmons, new quote unquote, new Ben Simmons reports. And I'm like, I'm not going to fucking talk about this. Why should I? It's the same report. It's either side trying to control the narrative. And once that happens, once the power struggle comes into play, like the relationship is it's, it's terminated. It's done. It's a wrap. You're not get, you're not rectifying that when you have so many public spats you're not coming back from that and that also attributed to why Ben Simmons didn't want to play for the Sixers and I'm sure that it got to a point where the Sixers were like you know what fuck it because if if, I'm sure the Sixers looked at him and they're like he's behaving like a child they just didn't say it out loud like uh the Cardinals front office did they but they like nobody wanted to deal with one another but instead of trying to rectified the situation it was the circus kept on chugging the circus popped up in a different city every week for six months straight and that also weighed on ben simmons this was a fucking super super long tangent i don't know how i got here but like ultimately the moral of the story is don't be surprised when you see Ben Simmons on the bench, laughing, smiling, joking around with his teammates, just know that he is progressing towards a better mental place. It reached this weird point where it's like Ben Simmons is faking his mental illness for the 76ers. And even then, I was like, that might be the case. But for you to not give him the benefit of the doubt, And to jump to that conclusion, it's disgusting. It's disgusting, especially when there's been no, there's been no fucking prior, like there's been nothing like this before with Ben Simmons. I mean, the only other time that like, 
he got serious criticism was when he like broke his foot or whatever at the beginning of the at the beginning of his career and he wasn't playing right away. But when that happened, the Sixers backed him up. They were like, "Oh, listen. We want to make sure that this kid is 100% before he comes back." They were like, "This is not new for us. We did the same shit with Joel Embiid. Ben Simmons is a potential generational talent, potential all-star, potential all-NBA player. We don't want to jeopardize this. And it was like, okay, cool. People still talked about it, but at least like there was no tension between the two. Unlike this time where there was a copious amount of tension between the two. Now, speaking of um, a lack of tension, Goran Dragic is getting bought out today, or he will be getting bought out some point. Goran Dragic, who was traded to San Antonio, will be getting waived or bought out, whatever. Now, some teams are, I don't want to say some teams, basically every contender is going to want Goran Dragic. Why? Because Goran Dragic is a relatively capable shooting point guard, but I think his defense has become very underrated. Statistically, in terms of points allowed per possession, per synergy stats, per, you know, opponents, field goal clips. Like, this guy's a decent defender for a guard, right? He doesn't get torched. He's got good athleticism. He's got good size. He's been in the league for a long fucking time. Played with the Heat. Went through a Pat Riley. Went through Pat Riley's organization. Went through Greg Popovich's organization for a hot second. Like, well, I mean, he didn't even play a game for the fucking, for the Spurs. But... You know what I mean. Don't fucking... You know what I mean. Who's going to who's gonna want him? And, you know, the Nets are going to be involved. The Lakers, of course, are going to be involved because the Lakers are fucking talked about with every free agent. But it appears that the Milwaukee Bucks might be the front runners at this case. And if for no other reason, the fact that it was just reported the other day that uh, Pat Connaughton will miss a foreseeable may miss a couple of months uh hold on we got it hold on hold on hold on i got i got video for you guys actually no just kidding that's an old video we're not going to watch it um pat Connaughton is going to be out for a little bit and the bucks what are they losing in pat Connaughton? they're losing a three and d guy what will they gain in goran Dragic? three and d guy more so um less of defense and less of well i said Less of three-point shooting because Pat Connaughton is a 40% shooter from deep and Goran Dragic is not. I'd say they're both on equal grounds defensively, but just having also another ball handler, that's that benefits everybody. Having another ball handler you can bring off the bench is always a good move. But, you know, there are going to be a bunch of teams involved. Brooklyn, the Lakers, fuck, uh, the Miami Heat. I bring him back. I know the Heat's depth is kind of wishy-washy right now. The Chicago Bulls, I don't know if the Chicago Bulls have been mentioned alongside Goran Dragic, but I feel like that could happen because year despite at times because it was also reported that Zach Levine is going to see a specialist on his right knee. I'm going to let Woj uh to, well, I'm going to let Woj talk for a minute. I got to give my voice a rest. By injuries and now it seems like it's getting worse with breaking news on one of their best players. Hey, hey, Greeny, I'm told that the Bulls all-star guard Zach Levine is headed to LA early this week. 
to see a specialist and get an evaluation of that troublesome left knee. Now, you saw him laboring with it Friday night in that win against Minnesota. Missed last night's game on a back-to-back. He injured it in mid-January, had an MRI then, no structural damage. Uh, And listen, he is, uh, along with DeMar DeRozan, who are both headed to Cleveland this weekend, they're the highest-scoring duo in the league. This is a Bulls team that among the top 10 playoff teams in the East right now, They've missed the most games with injury. They're only one game behind Miami for first place. Now, you know, I'm told that Levine is hopeful that he may still be able to play in the All-Star game mm. on Sunday, but he's going to miss their games Monday, Wednesday. He's going to go to L.A., get an evaluation on that left knee that has just given him a lot of discomfort. Remember, the Bulls are down Alex Caruso and, of course, Lonzo Ball, both who had surgery. You know, this is a team that's withstood a lot of injury. I'm praying that. This is just a case of, you know, Levine having to play a little bit more, uh, have a little bit of a higher workload because, as Woj mentioned, there is no Alex Caruso, there is no Lonzo Ball. So him and DeMar have been working overtime. I mean, DeMar is averaging like 37 points or something over his last, his last six games. Is seriously making a run, maybe not to be the MVP, but, you know, an MVP finalist, a top five, a top five MVP guy. Without a doubt, but like, you know, we're at the all-star break. Guys are playing a lot of minutes. It's been go, go, go for a lot of teams. And people's bodies are just starting to break down. And I think Zach Levine, I don't think his body's breaking down, but it's very clear that he could use a little bit of a break. Um, Obviously, nothing good would come out of Levine having to miss a considerable amount of time. However, it would further bolster DeMar DeRozan's MVP case, although I don't necessarily think that DeMar is actively rooting for another one of his teammates to miss a considerable amount of time because that's just that's just stupid. Uh, Billy Donovan says he swells after games sometimes and sometimes he doesn't. So I think getting to the bottom of some of that stuff, you know, they've obviously done imaging. He's cleared to play. There is discomfort there. He doesn't feel great. It really kind of depends. Might be just be like tendonitis, you know, something obviously tendonitis in theory is a is a minor thing, but for a professional athlete, no, any inflammation is bad inflammation, right? And tendonitis could just be the start of you know a snow. It could just be a snowball effect. But with all considering all of these injuries, it would kind of make sense for um, Goran Dragic to end up in Chicago. Gives you a guy, especially if Levine windup does missing some time. I mean, Dragic can give you 14, 15, 16 points a night, a couple assists. I mean, we know DeMar is still going to be carrying a bulk of the offense, but you don't want DeMar to have to turn into like Tracy McGrady or Solo Kobe and shoot like 30, 32, 33 times per game. Uh, so Dragic potentially in uh, Chicago. And of course, the, the defensive impact as well. That's something that Chicago has really missed without uh, Caruso and Lonzo, but I don't think they've been as bad as they could have been just because like the team overall is so strong defensively. Is there anything else? Uh, there was this minor story that came up with Tyreek Evans. So Tyreek Evans is being reinstated back into the, uh, into the NBA. He's been on uh, he's actually <laughs> coming off of like the third year of his drug ban, which occurred back in, I guess, uh, 2019 or so. 
Uh, the NBA, quote, dismissed and disqualified Evans on May 17, 2019 for violating the terms of the of the league's anti-drug program. He was eligible to reapply for reinstatement, for reinstatement last May, two years from the date of his ban. So he's back. Um, I don't think I think they mentioned that this wasn't a performance enhancing drug. It was just uh, I, I don't even want to say like a recreational drug, but, you know. A controlled substance, I guess, is the uh, is the better word. You know, we're like the CBA drugs of abuse include amphetamines, coke, um, psychedelics, PCP, opioids. Well, op- opioids, uh, heroin, codeine, morphine. Not like uh, prescription drugs or anything, of course, because that would uh, because those are different. Opioids. Uh, they also did include pot once upon a time, but no longer. Um, I mean, it's cool that Tyreek Evans. Can come back to the league. He was, you know, try. He was kind of reviving his career, I guess, before he got clapped. But ultimately, I don't know how much of an impact a a 32 year old Tyreek Evans is making. Um, of course, people are are uh, connecting him to the Lakers because why wouldn't they? Because fuck it, everyone's going to the Lakers. I mean, he's old enough to play for the Lakers. He cause he definitely hits the age floor, but. Uh, yeah, we'll see if anything more comes of this. Uh, it's absolutely fucking insane that, dude, like, I want to go back to this. This is from 2019 when he got, when he got fucking clapped. The NBA announced today that Tyreek Evans has been dismissed. The release also noted that the league is not permitted to discuss the details of the player's failed test. For NBA policy, this ban applies to drugs of abuse rather than EEDs. Um, of course, this article is mentioning the god OJ Mayo. Um, he got he's been good for a while. There was another guy, uh, Chris Anderson. Mitchell Wiggins, Michael Ray Richardson, uh, Richard Dumas. I don't remember if... I think... I'm fairly certain Evans was a repeat offender. But... I can't remember. I don't remember if he was a repeat offender or not. I think he was. But like two years, man, that's fucking insane. That's fucking dude, that's that's something else, dude. Two years for a little bit of recreational drugs. I guess I can't really say that I'm like too surprised just because, you know, knowing how the NBA can be with fucking shit like that. I think I think I'm wrapping it up for today. I hit on everything. Oh, I didn't hit on Harden continuing to nurse his hamstring injury. The Sixers say that Harden will be out through the All-Star break and will not play in Sunday's All-Star game. So Jared Allen was um, picked as his replacement. So let's give a round of applause. Let's get uh, another round of applause to a former Brooklyn Net. But um, I'm really curious to see how Philly handles Harden's His injury, uh, just his injuries, actually. I don't want to say his injury proneness, but 
I'm very, I'm very, I'm very curious to see how this plays out for them. Obviously, I want Harden to be healthy because uh, if the Nets meet the Sixers in the playoffs, I think both teams being healthy is going to make for the best product. But anyway, with that said, I'm going to close it out. Thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out with me today. Everything that I'm associated with is linked in some sort of description box below. If you're watching this live on Twitch, if you're listening to this in the audio format for the first time, thank you guys for tuning in. If you're a if you're coming back, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys coming to hang out with me today. Uh, follow me on all socials, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're, again, watching this on Twitch, why don't you go ahead and follow so that way we can come and hang out every Tuesday. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to tell a friend about it. If you didn't enjoy the show, also tell a friend about it. All press is good press. And with that, I'll catch you guys in the next one.